The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so welcome back. <laughs> so we're going to carry on and see where today gets us. So uh, let's see what happens. Okay, this one was done yesterday, so we'll take that one out straight away. Um, and we'll just fire away. So f first of all, dear Ajahn Brahmali, you even spelled my name correctly, that's very impressive. <laughs> Thank you for your great teachings. What is the relationship between proliferation, craving, views and conceit? Explain this afternoon and the core teaching of impermanent suffering and non-self. Um, the uh, c connection is that um, uh, non-self is what is related very closely to craving views and conceit. Yeah, conceit is almost the definition of having a sense of self or experiencing a sense of self. Yeah, if you experience a sense of self, you, are, you have conceit. That's almost the definition in the suttas, I am equal, I am the same, and these kind of things. Uh, and uh, views and craving, they emerge of that uh, self-experience. Uh, so the idea of impermanence and suffering and non-self, these are like the characteristics of existence called the tilakana in Pali. Yeah, the three characteristics. So this is actually what life really is. Whereas cravings, views and conceits are the outcome of not looking at the world in that way. Instead of seeing the world in terms of the three characteristics, we see the world in the opposite way. Permanence, happiness and self. And that permanence, happiness, and self, that leads to craving views and conceit. Yeah, so it is, um, one of them is showing the defilements, and the wrong way of looking at the world. The other one is showing the correct way of looking at the world. Uh, that's kind of how they are related to each other. Yeah. So by understanding impermanence, by understanding suffering, by seeing non-self, you are gradually undermining the craving views and conceit. Gradually you diminish them because you see things in the right way. It's a gradual decline, yeah? With so many things, sometimes there has been the question in Buddhism, in Buddhist history, when you, is the breakthrough to understanding, to insight, is it all at once or is it gradual? It's one of those famous discussions they've had and if you read books about the discussion in Buddhism, one of the very famous books is called the Kata Vattu, it's in the part of the Abhidhamma, and it, Kata means discussion, and Vattu means like the basis, the basis for discussion, or something like that. And that whole book is basically about the discussion of various views within Buddhism. And this is like the Theravada point of view, and how all the other schools are wrong, right? So this is kind of the <laughs> Theravada point of view. But what is interesting is that uh, you find that the sometimes I think the Theravadan point of view actually turns out to be wrong. Yeah? Yeah, what is right is the suttas. The suttas are obviously right insofar as they are the word of the Buddha. They are right. But the Theravada means much more than the suttas. The Theravada means the particular interpretation that is adopted by the Theravada school. That is the Theravada Buddhism. And that interpretation may not always be correct. Yeah, sometimes we may got it wrong. Sometimes maybe the other schools are right. And there's a number of interesting points that you can argue that Theravada maybe haven't got it quite right. One of them is the intermediate state of existence, for uh, intermediate state between lives, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, anyway, so that's basically what that is about. So gradually uncovering these things. So is it is the penetration to truth all at once, or is it gradual? Huh? Well, I would say it's both. Yeah, It is gradual in the sense that you gradually reduce the craving, you gradually reduce the conceit, you gradually reduce the clinging to views, but then there comes a point when it's really low, and especially when you come to samadhi, when there is no support anymore for the defilements of the mind, and that's where you can have the full insight. And that full insight is a immediate thing, right? So it's a gradual reduction until one day you get that 
click in the mind and bang you abandon the whole thing and that's the big insight that's when you become a stream enter or whatever and that is life-changing here and it's sudden so it's both sudden and gradual i think that is the interpretation according to the suttas as far as i'm concerned <coughs> ajan the expression stinginess comes up in many many suttas that i feel since it is not just connected to financial generosity here your comment yeah you can say it's not just connected to financial generosity uh, any kind of help is good yeah whenever you kind of helping out uh, but i think usually the idea of dana is usually connected with giving something in a suit as giving something physical of something that's usually how it is understood it can be giving food of course yeah that's the same thing it doesn't have to be money but as something a physical gift uh, if you give of your time or you give or you give a dhamma talk uh, is it still generosity not in that way it's a different kind of thing yeah? it's a different kind of giving it's still giving but it doesn't come under what is normally called chaga in the suttas uh, so it's slightly different uh, but giving is always good yeah if you let go of your sense of self you let go of your own self interest to support others uh, then regardless of how you do that it's going to be a positive uh, it's going to have a beneficial impact on your practice. All right. Okay, so dear Ajahn, thank you for your teachings, Venerable Sir. What is the best practice to teach our mind? that relationships are dukkha, so that we remain single in the next life. <laughs> well, relationships are, relationships are very varied. Yeah? Some people have relationships that are really bad, and you have, I mean, it's very well known in society, domestic violence and these kind of things, or psychological manipulation, and all of these things happen in relationships. They can be really bad. Some relationships can be good. Yeah, you have you find a partner who really fits well, and you very rarely have arguments or anything like that, and you just have a really good relationship together. So it's very, very variable what kind of relationships people have, and the majority of people probably have somewhere in between. Yeah, okay, it's kind of it's all right, but <laughs> it's it's not that good either. It's kind of acceptable, and after a while, you just get used to each other, you get attached to each other. You can't really separate, but you're not really enjoying that much either. You know what it's like. There's a famous story in, in Perth. There was a story of a, there was this man. He was really under his wife's thumb and he was kind of, he was really frightened of his wife. Uh, <laughs> and he was completely under the control. And when his wife was like, do this, and he would run around and he would kind of do exactly what she said. And, and then one day she died. She died first. Uh, and then he was so sad when she died. <laughs> It's funny, yeah? We, you suffer in the relationship, but then when they die, you also suffer. It's kind of weird. We are attached to the dukkha of the relationship. That dukkha gives us some kind of meaning. <laughs> and uh, so the answer is that, uh, you know, the problem with relationships, that if the relationship is bad, well, then it's obviously not worthwhile. Huh? But if you have a really good relationship, then when it comes to an end, you're going to suffer, huh? It's going to be really, really difficult for you, huh? And uh, so, and this is so. Regardless, it is problematic. Yeah? So this is the first thing to remember. And you have done this a million times before. Every time you suffer at the end of your life, and then you go into a new relationship, you suffer again uh, when that comes to an end, and it kind of goes on and on and on like this. Uh. But there is another. The point is that there is another type of happiness, uh, which is far more stable, far more profound, far more reliable yeah and that is the inner happiness it is much superior to any happiness you can have in a relationship so why do you want to go for the lesser happiness when you can have something more profound not only that but it doesn't have the drawback of people dying yeah people don't die when you have bliss inside there's no that problem is kind of resolved so relationships are always to do with um, you know the problem of um, the ending of things that's kind of always the downside and sometimes people can grieve for years when someone they're really close to passes away and dies. 
everything that is dear and pleasing to you must uh, uh, become otherwise, must be, must um, change. Yeah, everything dear and pleasing to you. Huh? That is kind of the reality here. Huh? So remember that, and uh, every time someone dies in your family, just uh, look at the problem and try to understand what is going on here. Okay, so... Uh, hmm. Alright, let's go on to the next one now. There's quite a few questions, so we carry on. Dear Ajahn, I'm interested in starting to read the suttas by focusing on the EBTs only. I appreciate that they can be problematic in discerning, but any advice on how to swim between the flags? Plenty of wrong view sharks out there, okay? <laughs> Would you ever compile a list of EBTs with 100% certainty? <laughs> well, the... Uh, Basically, the, uh, if you stay to the four Nikayas, the four main uh, collections, yeah, the long discourses, the middle discourses, the connected discourse, and the numerical discourses, uh, it's mostly good stuff. Uh, there's very little in there which is really misleading. Yeah. Yeah, I, you don't have to be too concerned. If you read that, you stay with that, basically you're going to be on safe ground. Uh, there are some suttas in there which are a little bit kind of... Uh, so sometimes if you feel that something is different from everything else, then go with the majority of the suttas. Don't take the odd sutta and write a book about the odd sutta and prove how all the other suttas are wrong based on one sutta. It's a very common thing to happen. Yeah, People kind of make this big thesis out of some very minor, marginal suttas and expressions that you find in the suttas and kind of making some into something very big. But that was a very good piece of advice that when Bulgana gave to Ajahn Brahm when he was in Sri Lanka. It was back in 93 or 92, it was a long time ago. And Ajahn Brahm went to Sri Lanka and when he was there he visited the forest hermitage in Kandy. And that's where when Bulgana a very famous German monk, he lived there. Uh, and uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, was his disciple, and they lived there, both of them. And when Vernaponika died, then when Bhikkhu Bodhi took over, and this was the Buddhist publication society that is based in Kandy, and they lived in the forest hermitage in the Uddha Vattakela forest. And um, uh, he, when Ajahn Brahm went there and met them, Vernaponika uh, uh, said to him, when you read the suttas, uh, you should focus on what the majority of the suttas say. That is likely to be the word of the Buddha. Don't focus on individual suttas that are hard to interpret, difficult to understand, and may even go against the majority of the suttas. That kind of advice will be very useful when you read the suttas. So you focus on the majority, and then you get a good outcome usually. So that is what I would say. And then also what you can do is that there are some good studies now. For example, if you read the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length sayings, there are comparative studies that have been done by people like Venable Analayo, who then looks at all the suttas in the Majjhima Nikaya and looks at all existing parallels and compares them and then says you know, where there are discrepancies, where there are uncertainties about the suttas. And that can be very useful. If you're really keen on reading the suttas, uh, that's the sort of thing you uh, might want to get into. Uh. So uh, <coughs> that is what I would recommend. The, um, the Atakavaga that we were reading today is also very interesting, precisely because it exists in Chinese translation and because it is mentioned elsewhere. Uh, but uh, it is verse, and verse is always more difficult than prose. Yeah? It is always more to give rise to emotion and give rise to feeling and give rise to a sense of urgency and get you going on the path. It is not meant to give precise teachings about what Buddhism is about. So... Uh, Yeah, so that's where I would start. And if you want to start anywhere specific, start with the uh, uh, in the Buddha's words by Bikubodi, which is an anthology. Uh, yeah, it brings suttas together into nice groups, nicely 
with nice introductions and nice comments by Venable Bickerboard, and then you have a good start point, and then you can kind of avoid the sharks, yeah, the sharks coming after you, the wrong view sharks, as you say here, that bite you on the bottom here. What's that? By that, but uh, yeah, whatever, whatever that is, whatever metaphor that is, I'm not sure what the simile is there, but anyway. All right, 100% certainty. There is no such thing as 100% certainty, so forget about that. Uh, you can get a little bit of certainty, but 100% certainty, that's out of reach, unfortunately. The only 100% certainty is to become a stream manager. Then you have 100% certainty. All right, so let's go on to the next one. Dear Ajahn, thank you for your beautiful explanations of the suttas. I often experience weird and sometimes frightful dreams. Are they manifestations of the consciousness? Are dreams mentioned in the suttas? Uh, are, are they manifestations of consciousness? Absolutely, there's certainly consciousness. Yeah, this is just part and parcel of uh, human experience is dreams. It's quite common to have uh, for people to have weird and sometimes frightful dreams. Yeah, a lot of people have nightmares, at least occasionally. Uh, the way to overcome that is to have more metta. Metta overcomes bad dreams, specifically mentioned in the suttas. And Guttanikaya tends the metta-nisangsa sutta, the benefits of metta practice. One of them is you sleep well. You see no bad dreams. Specifically says that in there. You wake up in the morning happy and energized, ready for the day here. That's good, isn't it? Isn't that a marvelous kind of benefit of of metta is just great. Fall asleep easily, you sleep really well, you wake up energized. <laughs> it's wonderful. So have more metta. That's what he says. So I'm not saying that you don't have any metta, I'm saying have more. The problem is that um, sometimes when we are already good people, uh, yeah, we think that, oh, well, I'm already good. But we can always do better. That's kind of the point. So when I say have more metta, I don't mean that you are lacking in anything. I just mean we have to go further here. And this, the path is always about further, about more. You may already be a wonderful person, become even more wonderful here. <laughs> That's what this is about. Our dream is mentioned in the suttas. Well, only in these kind of contexts. If you don't want to have bad dreams, have metta. That's kind of how it is mentioned in the suttas. The suttas don't say if you have this kind of dream, then it means this. There's only one place where it talks about the content of dreams, and that is the five dreams of the Bodhisatta, of the Buddha-to-be before his awakening. Yeah. And these were like prophetic dreams. And one of the prophetic dreams was uh, the dream that all these um, worms or maggots or whatever were crawling onto the Buddha's body. Yeah. And these were maggots that have, what is it, black heads and white bodies, something like that. Yeah. And these were like the lay disciples, yeah? It was, a, it was a kind of the idea that he will have all these lay disciples later on. Huh? And then there was, um, oh, I can't remember these dreams now. Huh? What were these dreams again? Oh, that's right, the body kind of spreading out all over the Indian continent, uh, the feet resting in the southern oceans, the arm in the northern oceans. Uh, and he was in a pillow, Himalaya mountains as the pillow. Huh? What was it? What, why, why did he dream that? that would, I think that it would spread. 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 He would have kind of, the whole of India would be his. Uh, okay, yeah. There was something about some birds. No, I, I can't remember. It's so long since I read that sutta. My memory is very, very vague. But these were like prophetic dreams. What would happen to the Buddha? Yeah? Or what would happen to the, from being a Buddha to be, to becoming a Buddha? That was kind of what these were about. So it's a bit different. So, um, yeah. Yeah, the Buddha, remember the Buddha doesn't talk about everything. Yeah. The Buddha says specifically that he has the handful of leaves. The handful of leaves is what he teaches, and all the leaves overhead is what he knows. So maybe dreams are kind of irrelevant. Maybe that's why I didn't say anything about dreams. Yeah, it could be. But if you want to hear, find out about dreams, maybe go and see some, maybe see a psychologist or something like that, maybe, or maybe some kind of maybe Jungian, uh, ther uh, Jungian um, whatever, and uh, see if they can tell you about dreams. Because uh, there are many people who get into dreams and try to figure out what they actually mean. So there, there may be something there. But probably it is like perpendicular to the Buddhist path. It doesn't help you that much to 
go anywhere her. Dear Ajahn, can we live with boredom without doing anything about it except being mindful of it? How to be at peace when there is nothing to do? You have to learn to enjoy nothing. Yeah, that's the thing. If you enjoy nothing, you're not really bored anymore. Then you, you just have nothing, but you enjoy it rather than being bored with it. That's the difference. So a large part of that is just knowing that you know when you are peaceful, when the mind doesn't move, actually it's a beautiful state. So when instead of then being bored, you enjoy that peace in the present moment. What happens, because we're not able to enjoy the peace, the mind starts to move, the mind wants to do things because we're not enjoying what is there. The trick is to enjoy the peace. If you enjoy peace, then you will never be bored ever again in your entire life because you just hang out in your room, don't want to see anyone. If someone knocks on the door, you say, go away. I'm bored. Yay! <laughs> so happy to be bored. <laughs> and then, you know, you, then, then there is no such thing anymore as not being, uh, yeah, as, 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 as boredom, basically. So uh, how do we learn to enjoy the peace? You just learn to enjoy the peace of mind. You learn to enjoy being still. And uh, whenever you do anything, you're actually disturbing the stillness. So you start to realize that just being peaceful, doing nothing, is actually preferable to doing things all the time. Yeah, it's one of the things that you learn gradually as a monk. It's not as if I'm never, you know, always rested and always peaceful. But after a while, over the years, you more and more enjoy your own company, more and more enjoy being by yourself, being in your kuti. And after a while, you don't really want to see people that much anymore. You become a mis misanthrope. Is that what they call it? Misanthrope. Someone who kind of doesn't like people. So I'm not sure if you become that, but you uh, you start to enjoy that sense of peace and solitude more and more. Yeah. Respected Ajahn, greetings and bows. You mentioned in Q&A yesterday that mere awareness of the breath going in and out is enough without actually relocalizing it. Does it cover all the four domains mentioned in Anapanasati Sutta. Please elaborate. Uh, yes, it covers all the four domains. Now, what uh, happens is that as you go deeper, there is less and less involvement of the will. The will is being abandoned more and more the deeper you go. So initially, we, you know, it's actually quite difficult to let go of the will initially, but at least you want to minimize it when you start out. You don't want to control the breath, you want to allow the breath to be. But it's very, very hard to allow things to be completely because the will is kind of active and it has this re reverberation of the will which carries on after you sit down and try to watch the breath. And this is one of the things that happens in meditation, things calming down. That is actually the letting go of the will. That's how you know the will is getting weaker. You may not feel like you're doing very much, but you can certainly feel that you're becoming more peaceful. That degree of peace is actually the letting go of the will that happens. The deeper you go in Anapanasati, the less will there is. Mere awareness. Mere awareness means not having any willpower to do it. It, at the very beginning of the Anapanasati Sutta, it says, it says, um, Satova Asasati, Satova Pasasati. And the Va there, Satova, Satva means mindful, yeah, Sati, same word as, my, as um, uh, Sati. Va is Eva, and that word Eva means, it's a tiny little word that you don't really see here. And sometimes it's mistranslated to, me, to, me, to say, ever mindful. But that actually not, doesn't really get to the point. It actually means just mindful. Yeah? The va can mean two different things depending on the context. I think it means just mindful. And why just mindful? Well, precisely because you're not doing anything. Yeah? Just mindful, you breathe in. Asasati, just mindful, you breathe out. Pasasati. And that is the, um, uh, the idea that you find there. But you find it also elsewhere. And you find it in that beautiful sutta on the uh, dependent liberation, uh, where he says, Nachetanaya karaniya, not to be done by willpower. Uh, the meditation happens by itself. Uh, 
Your job is to sit back. Your job is to be aware. Allow the meditation to happen. Uh, this is what you need to learn to do. And actually, it's quite difficult in the beginning because you need to learn an attitude of the mind that doesn't do her. That's why I've been saying these things like sitting in a chair after work to give you some idea what it means not to do anything, just to let be, just to allow things to uh, not not to be involved with what is going on. Uh, yeah, and then it calms down. Uh, so the first four steps of anapanasati: long uh, long breath, short breath, hold breath, calming the breath. Yeah, pasambayang kaya sankarang. Pasambayang means to calm. Fourth one is calming. It comes all the way, but that's when you kind of, that becomes into the foreground. Uh, then you have um, uh, piti, sukha. Uh, then you have citta sankara. Then you have citta sankara, pasam, pasambati. Yeah, you calm down the mental formation. In other words, the mental content. Yeah, And then, so every stage of the path. And in the third tetrad, you have uh, uh, ch- you. Chitta, you experience the mind, uh, then you gladden the mind, yeah, pamodayang chittang, yeah? then you have samahitang chittang, or no, some, some, what is it again now? Oh, yeah, anyway, you calm, you, you calm the mind, make the mind still, yeah, again, the stillness of the mind. Each step has stillness in it, calming things down, and each time you calm it down, the will is letting go of even more. The very the twelfth step of the Anapanasati Sutta is Vimochayang Chittanga. And Vimochayang means liberating the mind. And one of the things you liberate the mind from is doing, is the will. Yeah? So you calm, 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 calm until you liberate completely. And then the will is gone. So this is the grad, it's a gradual thing. But to even get started, you have to start out by basically not being involved. Yeah? Just allowing things to be. So cover all the domains and you become more and more peaceful as you go through the four tetrads, usually called four tetrads, four by four steps. And each tetrad is equal to one of the satipatthanas. Yeah? So these are equivalent to each other. All right. Oui. Mm, okay. <laughs> Bhante, how could the Buddha sit in bliss for successive seven days under different trees, not moving. Surely he needed food and water. Surely? Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not surely. <laughs> Uncertain. Does he need to go? What about going to the toilet? Is that kind of required? Now, what is interesting about these kind of things is that uh, as you uh, become more and more peaceful, uh, the metabolism of the body starts to slow down. Yeah, you stop metabolizing. Basically, everything starts to stop. And, you know, people sometimes can't believe it because the saying in the suttas is that when you come to the fourth jhana, you stop breathing. How can you stop breathing? Surely you will die if you stop breathing. Well, no, not necessarily. Because the reason why we need oxygen is to metabolize. That's the only reason. Oxygen is what makes the cells kind of take up energy and these kind of things. If the metabolism stops completely, you don't need oxygen anymore. The oxygen level level in your blood stays the same because no oxygen is being used. So when you come to that level, there is no metabolism. If there's no metabolism, you don't need oxygen, you don't need food, you don't need water, you don't need nothing. Yeah, Actually, you need nothing. That's the one thing you do need. But... <laughs> But you don't need, right? So everything just stops. Yeah, and this is kind of why you can stay in that state for seven days. And somehow the heat is maintained. I don't know exactly how that works because you think you need metabolism to maintain the heat, but actually you don't. Maybe that has to do with the mind, the mind kind of keeping the body warm because the mind is very powerful at that point. Yeah, Super duper powerful. Yeah. So uh, this is what is uh, happening here. That's why you can sit there for seven days, yeah? Nothing happening, and the body will still be warm. There's a famous story that I usually tell on every... I usually tell them on retreat. There's a nice story from the Mara Tajaniya Sutta, uh, Majjhima number 50. The Mara Tajaniya, the rebuke to Mara, is kind of the uh, usual English translation. And in, in the Sutta, this was during a previous Buddha, and in the sutta, the two main 
uh, yeah, the, anyways, it's a long story. And there's, yeah, one of these main disciples of the Buddha, he was a master of meditation, right? He would go to the forest, he would access a very deep meditation of, um, of Sanya Vedaita Niroda, the cessation of perception and feeling. Yeah. And when you have a cessation of perception or feeling, well, you have no metabolism. You don't breathe, you don't do anything. You sit there completely still, like a mountain peak, nothing is moving. You look like you're dead. That's what it looks like. And this happens even in the present day. People who see someone in deep meditation look like you're dead. And so these two forest fellows who are walking around the forest and they're kind of collecting wood or whatever to take back home, they see this monk, and they think, wow, there's a monk, dead monk over there. We'd better cremate him. <laughs> bad karma. You had to be careful what to do. If they knew he was alive, then it would be bad karma. But they didn't know what they were doing. So they make this big pile of wood because they had to put the monk on top, light up the whole thing, and then they walk away, allow him to cremate in peace. Yeah, So he doesn't have to be disturbed by us while, we, while he's burning up. And then the next day... They are out on Pindabha to put food in the monks' bowls. And then the line of monks come closer and then they look up. There is that monk they burnt yesterday in the Pindabha line. And they kind of get fearful and start shaking. What is going on? Actually, that's, that's, I'm adding, to, adding that to the story. But um, <laughs> you can imagine, yeah, you burn something, you, you cremated someone, and they come walking down the next day. It must be quite scary if that happens. And uh, the reason is, they say, well, if, when someone is in that kind of deep meditation, niroda samapat, your sanya vidaita niroda, you cannot hurt them. They cannot burn the body. The body is protected, presumably, by the mind, yeah, or something like that. Uh, the, so the body is somehow looked after. In fact, they say, even your robes are looked after. Yeah. So even your, I don't know how that works, but even your robes apparently don't burn. So after everything is burned down, you kind of get off the pile, you kind of get rid of the ash, yeah? get, get the ash off your robes, <laughs> and then you go pindavat. Yeah? <laughs> it's, kind of, it's an amazing story. So they actually find in the suttas. Yeah? So this is how that works, yeah? because the mind becomes extraordinarily powerful. Huh? And we underestimate the power in our contemporary society of the mind. We have no concept of the mind in contemporary society. We only have a concept of material phenomena. It's a very kind of impoverished view of the world. And it's also, I think, completely wrong. We don't know what we're doing. We're kind of fumbling around and not really understanding the nature of reality at all. Anyway. Okay. Uh, let's do the next one. This was, I think, from the same person, so I'll just, uh, the handwriting is the same. Bante, if Nibbana is extinguishment, uh, who reports back? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, Nibbana has two meanings. There's Nibbana in this life and Nibbana after you die. Yeah? And in the suttas, normally Nibbana means Nibbana in this life. An arahant has achieved Nibbana. What does that mean? It means you have extinguished greed, hatred and delusion. Yeah? Desire, ill will and confusion have been extinguished. That is the first extinguishment. Now, remember, once you, when you have that extinguishment, you also understand the Four Noble Truths. So you know that uh, this path, you know that you have reached end of rebirth. Uh, this is one of the knowledges of the Arahant that is explained in the suttas again and again and again. You know you cannot be reborn again because you have seen that craving is the cause of rebirth, suffering. You know you have ended craving, uh, so you know you can't be reborn. That is a knowledge you have. Uh. What that means is that you know that when you die, you will be extinguished. Uh. You don't have to report back. It's a knowledge that you have while you're still alive. No one needs to go there and say back, hey, I'm extinguished. Yeah? No, no need for that. <laughs> you are already, you, you know these things. It's an in, what they call an inferential knowledge. By definition, you cannot know. You cannot um, tell anyone that you are extinguished. That's by definition impossible. So this is uh, how it works. It is an understanding you have because you understand the laws of nature, in a sense. <clears throat> Question, dear Ajahn. They say that joy is a proximate cause for concentration. 
Concentration is banned. Yes, the word is not allowed, according to Ajahn Brahm. I, if it comes out of my mouth, oh, it's being recorded. That's right, Liv, I forgot about that. Oh, oh, if Ajahn Brahm gets to hear this, he will not be happy with me here. Ajahn Brahm, please don't hear this. <laughs> the chances of him hearing this are very small. So stillness, stillness is better yeah, than, than concentration. I'll get back to that in a second. Although I do perceive some joy in serving others, but that is short-lived. How to generate joy? I do try to follow the precepts, but I don't think I am perceiving any joy. Thank you. Um, yes, that is a very important point. Yeah, Joy is the proximate cause for stillness, for samadhi. And the reason why I know this is Ajahn Brahm's kind of one of his uh, important points that he makes, the reason why he doesn't like the term concentration. Because normally when we talk about concentration, we talk about willpower. Uh, yeah, you go to work, you have to read something, you have to write something, you have to exert willpower. Uh, that is not what meditation is about. Meditation is about allowing things to be, uh, having a natural focus, the mind coming together because you are practicing in the right way, not because you are abusing willpower. Uh, it's such an important point. Uh, and there's so much suffering that goes into meditation because people try to meditate rather than allow the meditation to happen. Uh, so I think it's a good idea to get away from this word concentration. There is, of course, something about concentration which is right. It is right in the sense that the mind comes together, yeah, comes together in one thing. It is no longer spread out and diffused. So it's concentrated in that sense that it comes together, but not in the way that we often use the word when we say, I concentrate. There's another translation being used these days, or actually it's by one person, only one person, I think, that is immersion. I, if you know, this is one of the hallmarks of this person's translation. So if you hear the word immersion straight away, okay, I know who that is, uh, translates. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter who it is, actually it's Bhante Sujato, I'll let you know. But, uh, <laughs> So he uses the word immersion. I don't really like immersion all that much, to be honest, because I think it's too technical and too cold and not doesn't really bring anything to me. But there is some. There, it is um, a good translation in some respects. Yeah, you are immersed in something. It's like jhana is sometimes translated as absorption. You're completely absorbed in the experience. There's no leakage into the environment outside. An immersion is a bit like that. You're completely immersed in that experience. There's very little leakage or no leakage beyond. So in that sense, it is quite nice. But in the sense of, in term, oh, it doesn't really work for me as a felt. I don't feel anything when I hear immersion. I think, yeah, okay, whatever. But when I hear stillness, it kind of speaks to you straight away. Oh yeah, stillness, I can relate to that. Anyway, that's my... That's kind of my feeling about it. I try to tell Bhante Sujato that he, he was wrong, but he <laughs> he wouldn't listen to me. Yeah. So he, he is, you know, he, he's actually very flexible, but sometimes he has, obviously, we all have our own ideas, so that's fine. Yeah. So yes, you're quite right that, you uh, that joy is approximate cause, a piti, then pasaddi, then sukha, then samadhi. This is the standard kind of sequence you have. Actually, before that, you have pamoja. Yeah? Pamoja, piti, pasaddi, and sukha, then samadhi. Yeah? And it's an amazing, it's really an astonishing sequence when you think about it. Pamoja means gladness. Yeah? It means kind of um, an initial kind of joy. Then piti, more joy. So joy, more joy. Then calm, a deep, profound calm in Pasadi, which is even more happiness, right? Because when you feel really peaceful, you know how beautiful that is. From that deep calm comes Sukha, even more happiness. It's kind of, when you start to read the suttas that describe the sequence of meditation, how it works, it's just astonishing. And you think, why isn't the whole blooming world meditating? Yeah, that's what you start to wonder, because the, it is just so beautiful how it is described. And then comes samadhi, which is even more bliss, right? And this is why, 
Ajahn Brahm's book is Mindfulness, Bliss and Beyond. Is sometimes he talks about bliss upon bliss upon bliss. I think that's one of the chapters that he has. I think one chapter is called Bliss, one is called Bliss upon bliss, one is called Bliss upon bliss upon bliss, or something like that. Because this is what happens in the sequence. And you start meditating, you get a little bit of joy, the tiny bit, and you feel, wow, this is so nice. That is only the tiny beginning of the sequence. Get a little bit of joy. And then it just builds up from there. It's just extraordinary. And uh, this is the kind of thing I think we need to talk about more. Yeah, because it is so powerful. And people learn about this, then they would probably come here and we probably had to build a massive building to, uh, to get everyone inside. Yeah, because it is such a beautiful message and it brings meaning to life. It brings all of these things that people are looking for. And it's right there. It's not, you don't have to be superstitious or you don't have to be, believe in all kinds of weird things. Yeah, you can just come, sit down, watch your breath and these things become available if you are ready. Yeah? If you have all the other pieces into the... Uh, come into the jigsaw puzzle, bring those things with with you, then it will work. Yeah. These are the things we need to talk about more. Instead, we talk about dukkha. Yeah, that's kind of why no one comes sometimes. <laughs> Someone was asking the other day, why, why doesn't more people, you know, why, why is it so hard to convince people about this? Or why isn't everyone a Buddhist or whatever? Yeah. Anyway, so yes, what you need to do yeah, and this is really the answer. You need to purify yourself more. You need to practice harder on the basic things of Buddhism. That is the reason why you don't get so much joy here. Serving others, great. Keep on doing that. Doing it again and again and again. It's when you build it up and becomes very that's when it becomes very powerful. And you'd learn to do it with a pure heart. Reduce your ego. Don't do it because you want to be better or anything like that. Do it simply because the very simple joy of serving others. It's a beautiful thing to give to someone else. Who benefits the most, the receiver or the giver? The giver benefits much more than the receiver. So don't think you're better. or Just do it because it's a wonderful thing to do. Bow down to the Buddha because it feels beautiful to bow down to the Buddha. Yeah, it just feels nice because the Buddha, there is so much wisdom, so much kindness, so much care. He spends 45 years just helping others out of compassion, not because he benefits the slightest bit. What an amazing teacher we have, all of us. It's a beautiful thing. There's no self there. All there is is giving and caring for others. Feel the joy of bowing down to some, something so beautiful Practice purity in your life. Practice not, as I mentioned today, five precepts is not enough. Practice kindness all the time. Ideally, you should whenever have enough awareness in your day to make sure you never have any anger with anyone. Yeah, okay, occasionally you have a bit of upset. I mean, that's just life. But don't, you know, always be on the outlook for that because that is where purity happens. Instead, learn to have compassion. Learn to see the good in the people around you. In a community like this, there is so much goodness. Everyone who is here is voluntarily keeping the eight precepts. Isn't that marvelous? People voluntarily torturing themselves. <laughs> Not really torturing yourself at all. You want to do the right thing. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing when people do that. So rejoice in having kalanamittas like this. It's a marvelous thing. Look at each other with... Uh, Eyes of kindness, yeah, and see the goodness in the people around you. They're not going to be perfect, but they're pretty blooming good, yeah. So enjoy that. This is how you gain that joy here. Don't make it into an ego trip. Don't make it into, yeah, I'm really good. That's not going to work. It's a peaceful, quiet feeling of satisfaction with yourself, knowing in a very peaceful way that you're living well. There's nothing to do with ego there. It's a very subtle kind of feeling here. And then you're on the right track. Yeah? So keep on working at it. Yeah, This is how it happens. And then, of course, in Buddhism we have these ideas of sila nusati and chaga nusati, recollection of your generosity, recollection of your virtue. And um, you can. Sometimes you can sit down and you can think of something kind you did and it give you a bit of satisfaction. But very often it's just automatic. Yeah? You know that you live well, so you automatically feel good about yourself when you sit down. Okay, if you feel a bit miserable, then turn your mind in the right direction. But don't overdo these kind of things, uh, because it's 
hard to you know if you try too hard to remember your own goodness actually that destroys the whole the whole thing and it doesn't really work it has to come fairly naturally then it sort of works it's a subtle very subtle kind of effort to remember the good things in your life so this is what you can do there's one other recollection that we don't talk about that often which is kind of interesting, which is the Devata Nusati, the recollection of the Devas. And this is the idea that uh, all those Devas in the world, I don't know if you have any feeling for Devas, uh, what that means, yeah? But what it means is really these beings that are very pure, huh? yeah, beings that are maybe bright and shiny and kind of emit light almost, uh, yeah? They're very beautiful because they external, they kind of, they external looks reflect the inner mind state that they have yeah so they are very kind of uh, and they are very kind usually yeah depending on exactly where they are reborn and so remember that to be reborn as a deva the things that you are doing now the way you are living now is the path to that deva loka so remember that yeah what you the way that those devas become devas that path you're practicing now it's also kind of a simple way of kind of giving maybe rise to a bit of joy. Yeah, this is actually recommended by the Buddha, so it must be a fair income way of reflecting him. And I'm trying to kind of burnish my Aussie credentials <laughs> because I'm <laughs> I have Australian passport now, so I got to try to be kind of use the Aussie idiom. No, no Aussies use it anymore. Kind of these are these are the old. <laughs> No, I don't never hear any others using it, but I, I try to kind of, I, can, I guess I got to prove myself or something. So um, anyway, that's how it works, right? Uh, so gradually, gradually, you, you build it up. Uh, but uh, don't be satisfied with the five precepts. The Buddhist path is very demanding. Uh, and I think sometimes we are not, don't understand quite how demanding it is in terms of uh, how we need to change our entire outlook, our way of thinking, everything. Uh, gradually, over time, again and again, never really giving up, uh, reducing defilements, building up good qualities, uh, moment after moment, day in, day out, uh, keep on going, uh, then eventually uh, you will get there. Uh. Okay, question. Venerable, many thanks for your teachings. Sariputra used to jump while walking, much to the angst of other monks. Lord Buddha said this was because he was a monkey in previous lifetimes. It is also said that Mahamogalana was Mara incarnate in a previous lifetime. Yet these people had the good fortune of practicing under the Buddha himself. So if this was the case with them, given that it is said to get human uh, birth takes eons, so the question is, we as lay people having family and work, how long will it take to reach liberation? How many eons? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. How many eons? If You have to take out the calculator and start uh, multiplying and dividing and kind of... Um, Take, uh, I don't know how would you do that. You know, you have to multiply your bad actions with your good actions and then have this really kind of convoluted equation. I don't know, maybe the Schrodinger equation, maybe that will do the job. I'm not sure. But um, the answer is no. It won't take eons. Yeah, It really depends on you what you do in this life, whether it takes eons or what it takes. Um, it takes eons to get human birth. The answer is no, it does not take eons to get human birth. It really depends on the situation. There are certain suttas that say that if you get reborn in a lower realm, it can take a long time to get reborn as a human again. That's only if you get reborn in the human realm first. And you have to be stupid. You have to do many bad things and you get reborn again. And because you are stupid, it takes a long time to get back. And the best simile for that is the simile of the turtle in the ocean. And there's a yoke floating on the ocean. Every hundred years that turtle comes up to the surface. And chances of being reborn in the human realm is the same as the chance of that turtle putting its neck through that yoke floating on the ocean. 
So that's why we say it's a small chance. But that is only if you have been reborn either in the hell realm or the animal realm. And also if you have you know, been stupid, you're just kind of you're not very wise about things. So it's, it's not that, you know, if you live well, the chances of that happening are not that great. More likely, if, you have, if you're unlucky, more likely you get maybe reborn as a ghost or something. That can happen. But being reborn as a ghost is bad, but it's not that bad. You can come out of that ghost realm fairly rapidly if you have good karma on your side or whatever. So, um, uh, and if you live well, chances are you get reborn in even higher realms, yeah? Not, not in these bad realms. Uh, some of the similes of the suttas are not reliable in this case. Some of them are merely kind of a template that has been multiplied many times over and it looks like the, you know, so some of the suttas, I wouldn't rely too much on them. Be a little bit skeptical when you read some of these suttas that are overly pessimistic and they look like templates that have been multiplied and don't really look like a real teaching of the Buddha. So um, uh, the answer is, just like with everything else, yeah, that uh, don't think like this. It's very hard to judge how long anything will take. It's impossible to know. It's very difficult to know oneself, to know your qualities or what they are. So your job is just to practice. Make the best out of your situation. Sometimes you have a family, you have work, you can't really just give it up and become a monk or a nun or whatever you have you have your obligations so you keep on doing that uh, make your very best out of it uh, and by remembering by understanding the urgency of this yeah this is how the mindfulness comes about so understand the urgency here yeah? every little kind action of act of kindness matters uh, every thought of kindness is important every thought go makes you go forward in the right direction. That is how you make progress rapidly uh, by remembering that. Uh, and if you remember that, that becomes the source that gives rise to the mindfulness uh, that reminds you of these things. Yeah? Mindfulness is not just being aware. Mindfulness is remembering the teachings. Uh, sati has this double meaning of memory and awareness. Uh, you are aware and you remember what you have to do. So how can you keep on remembering what you have to do? Come to Dhamma talks. Yeah? Remind yourself of the word of the Buddha. Okay, I've got to be kind. Yeah? Kindness is what really matters. I cannot afford one step back on this path. Every step has to be forward. Every thought I have should ideally be a thought of kindness, but at least not neutral, at least, but not bad. And when you see the importance of this, the more you understand how incredibly important it is, the more your mindfulness will be established. And you will try, use every opportunity you have uh, to be kind to others, uh, to do the right thing, uh, to not get upset when people slight you or they treat you badly, because you know it's not really your problem. It's the problem of the other person. Uh, then you are going to make quick progress. This is really the path. This is the way to do it. Uh, this is really, and I think often this is not emphasized enough. We talk about meditation practice. We talk about sitting for hours or whatever. Uh, but that doesn't work unless the other six factors of the Noble Eightfold Path are in place. They are actually more important. If someone were to choose between practicing sila, kindness, or meditation, I would say sila every time, because that is the source of everything else. Meditation will then happen. This is the critical thing here. But too often in our world, we talk about meditation being the most important thing here. Well, it is. If your sila is already perfect and you can access deep samadhi, well, then, then yes, it is maybe the most important thing. But for the vast majority of people, sila is where it is at. Even the vast majority of monastics, sila is where it is at. Because it's not that many people who can access samadhi easily. So just practice in this way. Yeah. Come to Dhamma talks. Allow yourself to be reminded of what this path is about yeah again and again and again this is the purpose of dhamma talks is to keep you reminded uh, and uh, if you heard the same thing a million times uh, don't get bored instead think what am i missing here how can i listen to this differently uh, what is it that i don't really understand why am i not making quicker progress uh, and if you take an interest a real interest in what is being said uh, you don't just kind of it kind of goes over your head and you're kind of dreaming about oh yeah i'm going to go golfing tomorrow or whatever yeah then it doesn't work you have to actually really take an interest in this teaching what is the buddha trying to tell me here what is going on
then you're going to make progress. So, so it's, um, it's a very, the Buddha is very demanding in a sense. It's a demanding path. It's not something you can just hang out and keep the five precepts and yeah, yeah, I'm going to become a stream entry. That, that's not going to happen here. <laughs> so, okay, let's just do the last few questions here. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, how would you recommend we study the suttas in our daily practice? Many thanks. What does Brahmali mean? <laughs> right, okay. So let's do the important question first. What does Brahmali no. <laughs> no, let's start with the suttas. That's the important question here. So, um, <laughs> so uh, how would you recommend? Read whatever you enjoy. That's what I recommend. Uh, yeah, so uh, I usually say, uh, start with a book I mentioned before in the Buddha's words. That's a good one to start with because it is a compilation. You don't get too bored. The suttas have been kind of picked out because they are different and they give you different angles on the Dhamma. Uh, or you can start just reading the middle-length sayings of the Buddha. I reckon the middle-length sayings are the best ones because it's a very varied compilation of suttas. Yeah, and you see the Buddha in different ways. You get a feeling for the Buddha. His, he meets different people. He talks, tells his life story and all of these kind of things. But when you read the middle-length sayings of the Buddha, if you don't like the sutta, if you don't like it after one paragraph or two, skip that sutta. Second sutta, don't like it, skip. Third sutta, don't like it, skip. If you only like one sutta in that whole collection, it's still worthwhile. Yeah, but don't read it if, unless you enjoy it. Uh, because if you read it as if you're going to school, yeah, and you have to learn, uh, you're going to get this really bad relationship with the Dhamma. Yeah, it's not going to be enjoyable at all. Don't make it into some kind of uh, something boring. This is not about. Uh, this is a different kind of learning. A learning where you want to be inspired about things. Uh, so be wise about this. Uh, and then gradually, 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 you uh, get into the suttas. Uh, Remember that the suttas, there are certain downsides with the suttas. The downside is that they are repetitive because it comes from an oral tradition. So you kind of get used to that after a while. Um, the downside is that they are a little bit, what you might call stylized. They have been edited so that they are very, you know, passages are exactly the same. There's a certain they're not really alive quite in the way that other literature is. Yeah, it feels a little bit dead. Sometimes the aliveness comes through, but it has a feeling of being a little bit um, stilted almost. It's not kind of alive in an ordinary way. So you have to read a bit between the lines. Uh, yeah? and, uh, but once you get over that, uh, they start to become incredibly meaningful. Uh, the suttas are the best presentation of the Dhamma in the world. Uh, no teacher is able to come close to the consistency and the uh, uh, um, expressiveness of the suttas, of the Dhamma, how the Buddha explains the four jhanas and samadhi, these kind of things. Absolutely astonishing compared to how anyone in the modern world does it. Uh, anyway, what does Brahmali mean? And Brahmali means the same as Brahmavangso. It's true. I didn't know it. In our monastery, when we want to ordain, Ajahn Brahm says, well, what do you want for your name? In most monasteries, say that this is your name. But in our monastery, it's like, what name do you want? Ajahn Brahm doesn't want to be bothered about thinking about names. Yeah, he's, he's got other things to do. So you think, yeah, okay, good point. What should I be called? So I, I looked through the Terigata. I came to Brahmali. Okay, I'll call myself Brahmali. I'm Ajahn Brahm, disciple, that seems about right. So I got Brahmali. And it turns out it means exactly the same as Brahma Vangso. Vangso and Ali is the same name. Ali means like lineage. Yeah? Vangso means lineage. It's the lineage of Brahma. They both mean that. So it's kind of really weird when I, when I saw that. I think, whoa. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so that's that, that story. So a couple of more questions, and then we will call it a night. Uh, question. Hi, teacher. I am quite dumb in the sense that I do not understand that how love, compassion, calm, peace, etc. feel in the mind. So I have much anger and greed and lust for sex. This I know I have. How do these things like love, calm, peace, etc. feel inside the mind? How to know? Many thanks. How to know is that you just have to practice the right things and then these things come about after a while. 
But um, it, it, you, you already have some idea what it means. Yeah, you have some idea. What does it mean to have a good friend, for example? Uh, how do you feel towards that friend? Yeah, how do you feel towards someone that you respect because of their good qualities or whatever it might be? Huh? Yeah, that is the beginning point of uh, uh, calm and uh, metta and love and these kind of things. Uh, yeah, what does it mean to feel respect towards somebody? What does it mean to like a particular person? Uh, these kind of things. Uh, but you need to develop these ideas. Uh, and one of the best ways of developing these ideas is to overcome that anger. Yeah, if you have find that you have a too much anger in your life. You really want to have minimum anger. Anger is very destructive. So overcome that anger. As you overcome the anger, the other qualities will start to arise in your mind. The anger is blocking them from getting access. This is one of the biggest problems there. So overcome that anger and things will come. How do you overcome anger? I talked about that quite a bit already, right? Learn to see people in a new way. See people with compassion, with understanding. They don't know what they're doing. They're walking in darkness just like you. If someone says that you are useless, what do they know anyway? They haven't got a clue what they're talking about. You don't have to take other people seriously when they say things to you. People praise you. Same thing. They haven't got a clue what they're talking about. Look, <laughs> look at yourself, whether you are worthy of that praise or not. Know yourself instead. Other people are kind of irrelevant. They are just... You know, they, they don't know anything here. Yeah. Just like you don't know anything, they don't know anything. So we don't have to take them so seriously here. Yeah. And then we, um, it makes the world a bit scary because no one is really in charge. Just people like us trying to run this world. That's kind of scary, isn't it? When you think of, think of it that way. Yeah. We're all equally clueless pretty much. No wonder this world is going to the dogs sometimes. Yeah. So uh, keep on just living in the right way. Be as kind as you possibly can. Do a little bit of meditation, uh, read some suttas, uh, uh, do some metta meditation uh, if you can. Maybe that's too hard for you if you are doing this, uh, if, it's, if you have a lot of anger. But uh, do things that you can feel calm you down. Learn from your own experience what works for you. Uh, and as you do that, uh, things will come down and these emotions uh, will start to arise in your mind as a consequence. Bhante, how do we catch that moment before we name the form? <laughs> Bringing with the usual prejudices, uh, the mind moves so quickly. Uh, uh, you don't do that. Uh, don't try to do that because it's impossible. Yeah, the naming and the f the name and form, uh, uh, where we uh, have a contact with the world, where we experience things, and then the all the papancha comes in. Uh, you can't really stop it by an act of will or by an act of being aware in the moment. Uh, that is not really the way to do it. This, what you need to do is uh, to overcome the worst defilements in your mind. That's your job. Uh, yeah. And the way to overcome the worst defilements is to focus on anger and ill will, first of all. Uh, this is the most destructive of all the defilements. stops you the most. Uh, so what you have to do is to have enough awareness to know whether anger is arising in your mind. That is what you have to do. So if you see that anger is about to arise, then you have to change your course. Look at that person in a different way. That is what you have to do. You look at that person with compassion. You know it's got nothing to do with you, how they behave. It's their problem. They are the one who are behaving badly. They are the one who haven't got a clue. They are the one who is in darkness. They are the one who is deluded. When you see the other person being deluded and in darkness, creating suffering for themselves, even though they want to be happy, that is when compassion arises. Instead of focusing on you and your hurt, you focus on the other person instead. It's very simple. It's so simple, but so powerful. Very simple things to do. Then you start to overcome. This is what you have to do. Yeah, This is where it is at. Don't try to kind of sort out the papancha. There's no way you can do that at the beginning. So reduce all the anger. Then you reduce the desire for the worldly things. I've been talking about this already. How the world is not that interesting. Because you just go on and on and on. More problems. This whole world around us of the five senses. Actually, it's out of control. Why are we so interested in that? In the long run, it leads to suffering and problems. 
So you want to look for another happiness, uh, the happiness within. Uh, the less interest you have in the world, uh, the less greed you have, the less desires you have in that world. Uh, and the less anger you have because you're overcoming anger. This is how you deal with it. This is kind of in the linkage between feeling and tanha. Feeling and craving. Yeah, You notice the feelings inside of you and you see the, how the craving develops from those feelings. And you see the danger signs. When you see the danger signs, that is when you restrain yourself. And you restrain yourself using wisdom, not using willpower. Like we talked about the other day here. Yeah? Then you're on the right track. Yeah? As you do this again and again and again, eh? as you practice virtue and kindness day in, day out, to the best of your ability, being generous, eh? being kind to others, eh? whenever you can, eh? it changes your mind. Gradually, gradually, gradually. You're on this kind of upward track. Yeah, okay, it's a bit like this, a bit choppy, but you're on an upward kind of direction, eh? heading in the right way. Eh? And as you do that, your meditation starts to work eh? because. Happiness within, feeling good about yourself, that is what allows the mind to become peaceful. Because you feel good about yourself, you want to be in the present. If you feel bad about yourself, your mind wants to fantasize. It wants to be in different places. When you feel good about yourself, it is natural to want to be here. Mindfulness becomes more easy. Mindfulness becomes more easy, meditation starts to work. You take this meditation... To as deep as you possibly can. And the, the deepest depth of meditation uh, is the samadhi experiences, yeah, the jhanas, the end of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, that is where you can have start to have insight. Uh, that is when the mind is powerful enough to be able to see through the papancha, understand the ideas of non-self, impermanence and suffering completely. Uh, that is the right way to practice. Uh, don't try to do things that are impossible. Too often people talk about vipassana, vipassana. I want to learn about contact, passa, how these things arise and be at the right spot. But keep it simple, really, really simple. If you make the path too complicated, you won't be able to do it. And there's really only one thing I always say at the end of the retreat. Please, after this retreat, remember only one thing. And I say, can you remember one thing? And people say, yes, I can remember one thing. I say, no, you can't. But still, there is one thing you should remember. And that one thing is kindness. Yeah, That's the only thing you need to remember. Because if you practice kindness consistently all the time, by body, speech, and mind, and by perception, by everything, you're going to make very, very fast progress on this path. That's really all you need to remember. Kindness means you don't do bad things. It means you do good things. It means you are generous. It means all of these things. And then you will find that your mindfulness starts to become empowered because of that. That's all you need to remember. But to remember that, come back and listen to the word of the Buddha. Yeah, Listen to good Dhamma talks. That will be the support. Okay, enough for tonight. <laughs> So I wish you all a very good night and uh, may you have a nice sleep, may you have no nightmares, do a bit, <laughs> do a bit of metta before you, uh, before you go to bed and let's just pay homage to Buddha Dhamma Sangha before we go.